Now a word from the uh, one who anchors our soul. Matthew chapter 12. Beginning at verse 46. Matthew chapter 12, verse 46. Your copy of the Word or your mobile device, however you access uh, the Bible. Verses 46 through 50 are texts for this Lord's Day morning. Soon to be noon. And I'm going to preach past noon, just letting you know. <laughs> the text reads as follows. While he was still speaking to the crowds, behold, his mother and speak to him. Someone said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak to you. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. I'm using the subject this morning for these verses, who's in God's family? Who's in God's family? The blessing of salvation is described by various terms in the New Testament. For example, redemption, regeneration, reconciliation, propitiation, union with Christ, justification, and adoption. God's family is a phrase that describes people who are recipients of salvation's blessing, people who are rightly related to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Systematic Theology, a book systemizing uh, biblical doctrine under the topics like God, Christ, man. It states this, the church is not merely a social club or a political organization knit together by common interests or shared hobbies. By virtue of the electing work of the Father, the redemptive work of the Son, and the regenerating work of the Spirit, we are Christians objectively united to one another as members of the same family. No wonder the early believers addressed one another as brothers and sisters. End of quote. We do that here. We call one another brother. We call one another sister. We understand we're not biologically related, but we understand we have a greater relationship, and that is because we have the same father. It's because we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's because we have salvation and we're in the same family and therefore we rightly relate to one another as family members, brothers and sisters. Growing up, I didn't quite understand that. I just knew I better call somebody brother. <laughs> I dare not ever, ever not attach brother or sister in the name for the name of an older person. I was trained to do that. I didn't really understand the spiritual ramifications of that like I do now. God's eternal family is comprised of people from every background, 
As I look around here this morning, there are differences among us superficially. But the, the, the thing about us is if we're Christians, we're in the same family, and that family comprises God's eternal family. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 makes this clear. It speaks of the living creatures, angelic beings, and the 24 elders, the church, already enthroned in heaven. They sang a new song to the Lamb, the text says, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break the seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. End of quote. This multinational, multilingual, multi-ethnic family that comprises the family of God is outlined there in the Word of God. And this unique family's ultimate destiny is the Father's house in which there are many dwelling places. You do know, understand, we're going to live together forever in the Father's house. Now, in our narrative I just read a moment ago, Jesus has the opportunity to define the family of God. And we're going to use as a heading to talk about that opportunity that arose in his ministry and life under the heading of the circumstance. Verse 46 uh, tells us about it. It's surrounding his teaching. Uh, this circumstance and appearance of his earthly family. And this opportunity came as is notice in the text. His brothers, along with uh, their mother, were standing outside seeking to speak to our Lord. Brothers, I need to talk about him, them for just a moment. These were Jesus' half-brothers. You do understand that. Born to Joseph and Mary after Jesus' virgin birth. They're named in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. There are four of them. Now, I'm not um, being mean. I'm just going to tell you some truth right now. Roman Catholic dogma asserts that these siblings of our Lord were children of Joseph from a previous marriage, therefore his stepbrothers, or were Jesus' cousins, Mary's sister's son, a sister who had the same name as Jesus' mother. Now, that's highly unlikely. I don't think you would name two of your children the same name. And I'm sure the parents of Mary didn't name another sister the same as Mary. Roman Catholic theology makes these claims to perpetuate and promulgate the heresy of the perpetual virginity of Mary. And there is no scriptural authority for this idea that Mary was a virgin all of her life. And by the way, just a side note, for anything you want to know about God, you want to know any truth about him, you have to have authority. And your authority can't come from a church tradition. Your authority has to come from a rightly interpreted word from the Lord. That's our authority for anything we believe about God, about Christ, about Satan. If God hasn't declared it, I ain't believing it. Amen. If God hasn't said, this is how it is, I'm not buying it. And if you understand this, you will understand that your authority is God's word. It doesn't matter what it is. We sit under his authority, and if he says this is the way it is, and that is not the way it is, then we understand God said this is the way it is, and that's what we accept. 
no scriptural authority for the idea uh, that Jesus is about Jesus' half-brothers and about Mary, about her perpetual virginity. Here's the reality. The Word of God speaks clearly to this. Anybody who understands that God's Word is authoritative, understands that it is unambiguous that Joseph and Mary had normal marital life subsequent to Jesus' birth. You find that in Matthew chapter 1, verses 24 and 25. He kept her a virgin until after Jesus was born. And then they behaved just like any normal married couple. The Word of God says it. And the Word of God says, therefore, I accept it. Don't you? That's our authority. Second thing, the word in our text, you see it there, brothers. is rendered in the Greek, adelphoi. Adelphoi is the plural brothers. Greek, the Greek language in which the New Testament was written has a different term for cousin. If, if Matthew wanted to say these were Jesus' cousins, he had a Greek word to use to make that quite clear. And beyond Matthew, God the Holy Spirit who created language had another Greek word he could have used if he wanted to let us know that these were Jesus' cousins and therefore Mary was a perpetual virgin. Now that word is found in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10. Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. In the Old Testament, Psalm 69, 8 is a messianic psalm. It in part reads, I have been estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's son. Sons, it's a prophetic, it's prophetic of Messiah's relationship with his brothers prior to their salvation. Spoken all of those centuries previous. And this is picturing Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, what he would say about his brothers who were alienated from him because they were unbelievers. So this text that we're reading here in verse 46 cannot mean cousins or stepbrothers. The term brothers refers to Moses' Messiah's mother's sons, Jesus' half-brothers. Now, let's go further in verse 46. Along with Mary, these half-brothers were outside wanting to speak to Jesus. You you might wonder, why, why couldn't they get to him? Luke chapter 8, verse 19 tells us that there was a crowd. There was a density of the crowd. Wherever Jesus was, people were always around him. It was hard to get to him. On one occasion, Jesus had to go and get in a boat and let the people stand on the beach because of the crowds. So they couldn't get to him, so they sent someone to speak to him. That's what it says here in verse 47. Now, we can understand want to understand beyond that well why couldn't they get to him Uh, why did they want to get to him I'm going to look at Mark chapter 3 if you want to go there you can I would highly recommend it (laughs) Mark chapter 3 here this is a parallel account of what we're studying in Matthew chapter 12 and this passage in Mark chapter 3 gives critical information about their desire to meet with Jesus and you see in Mark chapter 3 verse uh, 20, 20 and 21 says this and he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal Jesus and the disciples couldn't eat because the people were there so many of them 
now in verse 21, when his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Now, now you get the picture. This is critical. His own people, in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3, refers to his relatives. His mother and his brothers, half-brothers. And in verse 21, they want to take custody of him, to take him into their control and restrain him for his own good. They're, they're seeing the fact that he can't even eat. And these people are gathered around him constantly. His ministry activity was relentless. Wherever he went, people were following him. And it just seemed like this is crazy. And not only that, on top of that, there's the fact that the Pharisees were plotting to kill him. The rumor had gotten around. And so they said, this is what they were saying. The half-brother said, you know, we got to go get Jesus. We got to take care of him. We got to protect him. Why? Verse 21, as I read. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. Let me explain what that word lost here. The Greek term means to lose one's mind, to be beside one's self, or to be insane. Um, so I thought about this. Jesus was accused of a lot of things, wrongly. One occasion he was accused of, by some of having a demon. Others said that he was a good man, and others said, no, 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 to the contrary, he's not a good man. But Jesus, they were saying he was insane, was doing the will of God the Father. May I suggest to you that the most sane person ever on the planet is the one who is doing the will of the Father. If doing the will of the Father is crazy, then let me be called insane. <laughs> you want to be known as doing the will of the Father. Jesus on one occasion, remember in Mar uh, John chapter 4, it's the men had gone into town to get some food, and it was Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman, and they came back, and he told them his food was to do the will of the Father. His satisfaction was doing the will of the Father. For you and me as Christians, our deepest joy and greatest satisfaction ought to be doing the will of the Father. When we're doing His commands, when we're doing the things He wants us to do, then we are sane people. We are in our right mind. We're not out of our minds. We have really regained our senses. I'm going to tell you what's insane. Sin. Sin is irrational. Sin is the opposite of doing the will of God the Father. Sin is foolish. Sin makes you, as one man, stupid. You want to know what's right is due. God's will. So what they were doing here, they were performing an intervention. Um, they no doubt had deep concern for him, but the, the fact of it is, they, they really did not know Jesus' aims, his brother's, his purposes, his mission. As I said a moment ago, at this time, they were uh, unbelievers. They didn't believe he was Messiah. They didn't understand his divine mission. They did not know his true identity, therefore. 
They didn't know his heavenly origin. They did not know his son of the father. They did not know any of that because they were unbelievers. Jesus' mother, on the other hand, she had been informed by Gabriel that he was the son of David, a term for Messiah, that he is the son of the Most High. She also knew that his conception in her womb and his birth were a one-of-a-kind miracle never to be repeated. Mary knew that. Mary would have known something about Jesus' nature, that he had the same nature as God because he is the son of the Most High. She would tell them about the incident when our Lord was 12 years old. Can you imagine a 12-year-old sitting in a temple, as Jesus did, asking questions of the uh, spiritual leaders and answering them. They were astonished at his learning. Twelve-year-old. And, and the family had already gone back home after Passover event, and they realized Jesus is not with us. So they had to backtrack, go back and find him, and guess where they found him? In the temple. Would you love to go somewhere and find your kid after you lost him over there in the church talking to the pastor? <laughs> so, oh, praise God, my son, my daughter wants to talk to the pastor about the Bible? That's where you've been? Great, praise his name. <laughs> Jesus is stunning here. He said, did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? What? Joseph and Mary hears from his lips, did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Luke 2, 49. Mary and Joseph did not comprehend the full meaning of divine sonship at that time, but they knew something about it. Mary knew something about it. Why would Mary be assisting her, her sons going and she was, no, no, no doubt, coming along to protect the Son of God. She, no doubt, believed in him. So that's the circumstance that sets up Jesus' pronouncement as to who is in God's family. Now, back in our text here, in Matthew chapter 12, and we will look at verse 48, and we'll talk about the identification. But Jesus answered the one who was telling him and said, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? This question, of course, was preparing the listeners uh, to this interchange between Jesus and the person who uh, told him, preparing them to hear exactly what Jesus was going to say about who's in his spiritual family, who are his mother and his brothers and sister, whomever, in his spiritual family, spiritual terms. Verse 49, and stretching out his hand to, toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. Jesus identifies his disciples as his family members. Now, the word disciples disciple means a learner it means follower a disciple can be either a genuine follower of Christ or a false follower of Christ one who is a true convert or one who is a false convert 
And there are people who claim to be followers of Christ, but they're not for real. Even during Jesus' ministry, there were people who were called disciples. You can see it in the New Testament, and yet they would quit following him because their discipleship was superficial. When Jesus outlined, for example, in John chapter 6, the requirements of what it means to be his genuine disciple, they walked with him no longer, the Bible says. But Jesus defied a true disciple, one who truly belongs to him, one who is truly in the family of God. He did this in John chapter 8, verse 31. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. In other words, if you continue to follow my word, obey me, that is indicative of the fact that you really are in my family. It's not simply a matter of saying, I believe in Jesus. It's not merely a matter of joining a church. It's not merely a matter of contributing to a church. It's a matter of do you commit yourself to following him by obeying his word. If you continue in my word, you are truly disciples of mine, Jesus' words. And you need to know that because the stakes are high. There are some people who think they belong to Christ, but they have no regard for obeying Christ, but yet they think they belong to him. No, you better understand. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. That is the litmus test. The word of God, one of them. How does one become a disciple? By means of the new birth. The new birth. I'm going to tell you something. When you've born, been born again, you're not the same. Oh, no. When you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, you're not the same. You have a new nature. You can't be the same because you've been transformed by the sovereign work of God in your heart. And so you have a love for God, a love for Christians, a love for his word. Your whole life has been altered eternally. You can't be the same when you've been born again. And when you've been born again, there's this love for the Word of God. You want to look into the Word of God and understand the Word of God and obey the Word of God because you've been born again. You need to understand that. So you get in the family of God. You've got to be born from above. So that, that's what happens is how you get it now. When Jesus said about his disciples in verse 49, he understood clearly that only 11 of them if we talk about the original belonged to him, there's one that, who did not. He did not experience the new birth, and that is Judas Iscariot, as we all know. He was a phony, phony from beginning and continued until the betrayal, and then he hanged himself of deep remorse, betraying the son of the living God. But what happens when you're in the family of God? Uh, our Lord expounds further here in verse 50. And the identification of who belongs to him for whoever. You see that? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let's stop at a comma and I'll unpack that you know what the rest of it says. Whoever is um, a universal invitation to believe. Um, whoever includes anybody who will believe. Christ did exclude anyone. If you want to believe, if you want to come to him, come. He invites you to come. It's similar to Matthew eleven twenty eight. You may recall that when it says, Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you the rest of salvation. You come, come to me. That's always the invitation. Come to me. Him who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. It's an invitation, an open invitation to all sinners. Are you a sinner here this morning? You can come to Jesus. He invites you to come. And if you refuse to come and you die in your sins, don't blame Jesus. You turn down the invitation. Whoever may come. And those who truly come, they do the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's what true Christians do. Now, I want you to see something. Keep your place here because we'll get back there in a moment, I guess. Matthew chapter 7. We've, we've covered this previously. Some of y'all weren't here. So I want to I catch you up. <laughs> you need to understand this. How important it is. Matthew chapter 7. You can't merely affirm facts about Jesus and expect to get into heaven. No, it's more to it than that. And I'm telling you why I say that, because Jesus says it. Remember in this little sermon I said earlier, our authority is the Word of God? Here's the authoritative word of the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's stop at the comma. There are going to be a lot of people at the day of judgment say, Lord, Lord. They're going to call on his name, Lord, Lord. They know who he is. They affirm his lordship. But who will enter the kingdom of heaven? He who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. He who does the will of my Father. And by the way, that's ongoing reality in the life of a person who truly belongs to him. Jesus said, lip service won't cut it. There are a lot of lip service people. They'll say, praise Jesus out of one breath and cuss you out of the other. <laughs> Hello? <laughs> I'm not talking about an occasional slip. I'm talking about that's just them. They swear up and down. They're going to heaven. They're going to be the first one that God takes. And they can sure enough talk about Lord, Lord. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. So you know. Do you do his will? Obedience is evidence of a transformed life. You see, before you were saved, before I was saved, we didn't want to obey the Lord. We wanted to obey our flesh. We wanted to do what we wanted to do, when we wanted to do it, and the way we wanted to do it. But when the Lord saved us, then it was a whole different ballgame. It was a paradigm shift. We said, oh, I, I want to obey the Lord now. And we regret the times of our failure and our sin. We hated all of that. Obedience is evidence of a transformed life. And so there are people, I think, here, I, I need to show you one more. Show you how it's going to work out. 
these people are going to claim their religious activity in verse 22. Remember that? It says, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles? Those aren't the, uh, the badges of genuine salvation because phonies can do all that. The devil's crowd can do all that or fake it, at least the uh, miracles. And Jesus, expanding on this, said, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, disobedience to the word of God, disobedience to the truths of God. Sin is transgression of the law, John chapter 3 says. And that's what sinners do. They transgress the law of God. That's their practice. That's their lifestyle. Although they, oh, they have all this religious stuff that they engage in at the appropriate times, religious times, but boy, when they're not doing that, they're doing those things that are sinful and rebellion against God. So Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 50, these people who do, here's the authoritative word, who do the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. There you go. There you go. Can't be any clearer than that. You say, well, the sermon's over? No, it's not. <laughs> Boy, I led y'all into that, didn't I? <laughs> y'all thought we're going out on that note. <laughs> now, I have one more thing to share with you. A few more things. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Here, uh, through his apostle Paul, the Lord Jesus Christ amplifies the realities that are found in the life of the members of God's family. Romans chapter 8 is a delineation of those things that distinguish true believers from those who are not. The contrast, as you go through Romans 8, are clear. And we're not going through the entire uh, chapter, by the way, just to set your mind at ease. But the Holy Spirit is front row and center here in his application of salvation to the life of the believer. And we see his work in the life of the believer is clear. And if you're a child of God, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Romans 8 verse 9 it says, However, you are not in the flesh, speaking to believers, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Jesus Christ, period. Because he only takes up residency in the life of one whom he has transformed by the new birth. Now, as we look at a couple of verses here, I want you to understand something. This is family language. In verses 14, 13, uh, 14, 15, and 16, we see the words like sons of God, adoption, children of God, family language. Language that belongs to the Christian, the child of God. And the apostle here is talking about true believers who possess the Holy Spirit. We just read that a moment ago. He is at work in the life of a true Christian, and this is what he does. Verse 14, he leads. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. 
leading. What, what does that mean exactly? Hmm. Well, let me first of all tell you that the word are being led, the words, present tense, indicative, indicating a fact of their life. The Holy Spirit leads the believer. How does he lead the believer? He leads the believer. Here's the point. Sanctification. In verse 13, it says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. It is by the Spirit's direction and power that we put to death the deeds of the body, sinful expressions in the body. That's what true believers do. They're not indulging their flesh, their sin. They're putting their sin to death. They're killing it. That distinguishes true Christians from those who are just professing. Putting to death the deeds of the body. They're doing that so those deeds will not be expressed in the life. The Spirit of God who lives in the Christian is helping them do that, enabling them to do that. Being led by the Spirit of God. The believer is being led into sanctification. There are times of interruption. I need to add that because somebody's going to get nervous. They say, well, I've been putting the deeds of flesh, but you know, every now and then I do mess up. See, there's a true man of God. He said, amen. Y'all should have echoed that. <laughs> because all Christians, because we're not in heaven yet, we do sin. That's why we confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, Right? But as we yield to the Spirit's direction and His power through the Word of God that He informs our mind, then what we're doing is putting to death the flesh, the expressions of sin. Let me tell you another thing. Whoever God justifies, He sanctifies. When God saves a person, He begins the process of sanctifying that person. Setting them apart practically from sin. If a person is not being sanctified, if they're not being set apart from sin, if sin has continued to dominate their life just like it did before they claimed to be a... But in the family of God, that's a reality. We're being led by the Spirit in sanctification, and we are the sons of God. That's how you know. It's one of the means. Further, he illumines our minds so that we can understand and obey the Word of God. Um, Psalm 119, verse 34. Some of y'all want to write it down. Some of y'all want to turn there. That's fine with me. I'm going to go over there. Well, why don't y'all, we got a little time. Go ahead. Look, if you choose. Psalm 119, verse 34. I want you to see this. This is important. Psalm 119, verse 34. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Let me tell you what the psalmist here is doing. He is asking Yahweh to give him understanding of the word of God that he may observe or keep the law of God with all his heart. That is the prayer of a man who has been transformed by the grace of God. He wants to obey. 
So illumine my mind, Spirit of God. Illumine my mind, God, that I might understand your word, that I might put your word into practice because I want to keep it with my whole heart. And additional, I'll give you this one for free, verse 35. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. That, my friends, is a clear indication of a man or a woman who has come to faith in the Lord because they want to walk, obey, do the commandments of God and walk in their lifestyle. So two things. He leads in sanctification is holiness. He illumines our understanding of Scripture. Verse 15 of Romans 8. You can go back there now. Verse 15 says here, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit of adoption and intimacy with the Father. The I fear here in verse 15 that comes from slavery to sin and the wrath of God that will come upon a person as punishment. People who are enslaved their sins because they're unsaved, they've not come to faith in Christ, they are aware that there's judgment and they fear the punishment that's coming. But we who are Christians, we don't have that fear. That fear is gone. We're not going to be punished by God. We're not going to experience His wrath because Romans 8, 1 says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't fear coming judgment. We've been delivered from that. We have the spirit of adoption. We recognize the reality that God has made us His children. His Spirit dwells in our hearts, and our spirit recognizes that we're always privileged to come before the Lord. We can approach Him as our beloved Father. We didn't do that before we were saved. Oh, you say, uh, I, I knew the Lord's uh, prayer, as it's called, our Father who art in heaven. I don't know how many times I've heard people quote that or sing that and didn't know our Father who is in heaven. It's one thing to sing it in church. It's another thing to get on your knees in private and say, Father. Adoption speaks of a permanent relationship. And the term is filled with ideas of love, grace, and an intimate relationship. All Christians have been adopted into the family of God. How wonderful that. You know, we are not by nature God's children. As unsaved people, we're children of wrath, children of disobedience. We deserve judgment. We deserve damnation. We deserve hell. We belong to Satan's family. But what God did, he took us out of Satan's family in salvation, and he placed us in his family. He adopted us. He made us family members. And we cry out in prayer, Abba, Father. It's an intimate way of calling him in prayer. Abba is a term of endearment. It's like saying Papa. It's like saying Daddy. It's a longing for communion with God. It's what happens when you're in his family. You want to commune with him. 
and prayer. In verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Let me tell you a couple of ways that it happens. One, the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23. The Spirit of God who indwells us permanently produces the character of Christ in us, in us called the fruit of the Spirit. And that fruit is born in our life, and we see it lived out in our life, not by our power, but by the Spirit's energy. Testifies to the fact that we belong to Him. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, kindness, self-control, etc. Nine, fruit of the Spirit. Another is when believers are compelled by love for God, love for other Christians, experience answered prayer, discern truth from error, long for and move toward Christ-likeness, the work of the Holy Spirit is evidenced. And those believers have witnessed that they are children of God. Let me just unpack this briefly as we close. The Spirit of God will produce in you love for God. You'll love other Christians. You'll know when somebody is speaking about God is bogus. You'll move toward greater likeness to Jesus Christ. You want to know if the Lord has saved you, He's working in you, you're becoming more like Christ. All, this, all these things are telltale signs of being a child of God, knowing that you're in the family of God. And one can't get into the family of God apart from faith in Christ and repentance from sin. Can't get in his family otherwise. But is this really important? Yes, because being in God's family is the family that will live forever. It's an eternal family. Anybody outside the family of God will experience a second death, that is separation from God for all eternity in a place of eternal torment, conscious eternal torment. That's the awful reality of rejecting God, rejecting his family, rejecting Christ. Are you in God's family? You've seen the biblical teaching. The Spirit of God has shown you you're not. You need to come to Him today, whoever. It's the invitation that stands. You may come. If you're a child of God, rejoice in what God has done for you. Praise Him that you're in His family. Praise him that he chose you in eternity past and in history he called you by his gospel and you belong to him. Praise him for that. Thank him for that. And walk in humility for what he has done for you. Amen. Because we didn't choose God. He chose us. And we give his name praise, glory, and honor forever. Amen. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we bless and thank you for the great privilege that belongs to us that we are in your family and we call you our Father. You saved us from deserved damnation. We were your enemies, hostile to you. 
hated you. But you and your love and grace and mercy, you reached down to our, in our miserable condition, our helpless estate, and saved us. Glory to your name. Help us to continue to live for your glory, honor you increasingly, look more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and serve him with greater zeal and desire. We pray for those in this room who are without the Savior, without Christ. We pray you open their hearts to believe that they might become a part of your forever family. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.